as we continue our series entitled The Hall of Faith, looking at the inductees of this Hall of Faith that we find in Hebrews chapter 11, ordinary people that experienced and saw God in dynamic, extraordinary ways. These individuals were given to us as examples to help us understand what faith is and why it is so crucial and key to our Christian lives. It shows us and demonstrates for us that faith is the element, the sense in which we as Christians possess to allow the invisible world to be a reality around us. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. The message entitled this morning is Desire a Better Country. And before you think we're going to launch into some political message this morning, we're not. But desiring a better country is a mindset that every believer here should carry. That country is the country that is still afar off. It is the country that has been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who during their time here on this earth never experienced the fulfillment of that promise, but lived according to that promise in their own personal lives. Negating their affiliation with this world and allowing themselves to become pilgrims and sojourners here on this earth. As Christians, we are called to do the same. We are to be in the world, but not of the world as individuals. We should see ourselves as pilgrims and sojourners, one who are just simply passing through, waiting the kingdom of God. Now, we know that the Bible is clear that while we sojourn here, we have responsibilities. We have responsibilities as citizens of the kingdom of God to live a life accordingly, to live what we state we believe. Paul saw himself as an ambassador for Jesus Christ, one who saw his life as one of being on mission consistently and constantly for the purpose of glorifying his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He saw himself as one just simply passing through this world. He saw this journey, this pilgrimage, this sojourning as a race to be won. And at the end of his life, he had stated, I've run the race. I've fought the good fight. I have finished what God has set before me. That should be our mindset as believers in Jesus Christ. And this is where this morning's message is going to become difficult for some of us to hear. I feel that these four verses, verses 13 through 16, are crucial for our understanding of everything that surrounds it within the chapter. For these four verses give us the mindset of these individuals and allows us to look into their thoughts and into their hearts and see why they did what they did. If you've 
taken psychology classes in high school or in college. Psychology is the quest in understanding why people do what they do. This is the revelation of that fact for us. Why these individuals did what they did. Growing up, one of my favorite times in school was going on field trips. That was it. That was the highlight of the year for me all through elementary school and into you know, junior high and even into high school. My second favorite was recess. Third was lunch. And you saw where my priorities were. But between first and fifth grade, we always went on at least one field trip a year. And I kind of, well, was fortunate because many of you know that my dad was a principal of a school in the city of Chicago for 30 years. And so when his school, because he was a principal of an elementary school, when his school would go on field trips, guess who got to come with? So I got double field trips every year. The only thing close is double stuffed Oreo cookies. All right. Field trips were fantastic. There were spring field trips. There were winter field trips. And you know, here in Chicago, we have two seasons, one that's acceptable, one that's not. And during the winter months is when often the field trips were scheduled to give the kids a break and get them out of their classrooms and get them active and doing something. And we always went to one of four places. One of four places. We could guarantee that the field trips were always going to be to one in four places. The field museum, the science of industry, the planetarium, or the shed aquarium. Those were the four places. There used to be a fifth, the Art Institute, but the kids rebelled and boycotted it, so they went down to the four. And in each and every one of those museums, there was always our favorite exhibit that we always wanted to get to first. And we didn't, you know, the teachers were trying to educate us in the process, but we being the dutiful students that we were, we didn't care about any of that. We just kind of ran to where we wanted to go. And so if they said the Field Museum, you can bet that the first thing that we ran to were the dinosaurs. That was it for us. And then we would ask the teacher a million questions, and she would say, well, read the plaque next to it, and it'll answer those questions for us. Well, why should I read it when I can just simply ask you? If we went to the Science of Industry, that one was a little bit trickier. There were those who leaned towards the coal mine, But once you go down in an elevator, you know, you kind of go down in an elevator and then they pop the gas and it's fun and it's like, okay, I was a submarine man myself. I had to go to the submarine and we would ask the same questions every single year. Well, what about the submarine and how did they get it here and where did it come from and so forth? And you know what our teacher used to say? Read the plaque and it would tell you everything that you need to know about the submarine. And of course, it was the same in the planetarium. We couldn't wait to get to the planetarium and look up and just see the stars and everything else and so forth. And of course, we'd have the same questions. And of course, the teacher would say the same thing. Read the plaque. Then we would get to the shed aquarium. And we couldn't wait for the diver to go in with the sharks. 
until we realized none of those sharks actually have teeth. And so it was pretty anticlimactic after that, you know. But then we would have questions about the fish, and she would say the same thing, read the plaque. As we're walking through the Hall of Faith, and we've seen Abel, and we have seen Enoch, and we have seen Noah, and we have seen Abraham, and now we, ha- we saw Sarah last week. And we may have questions that are arising in our minds and our hearts. I say to you what, I, what the teacher said to me, read the plaque. Verses 13 through 16 are the plaque. This is the insight. This is the information that we need to know and understand to help us uh, discover why these individuals were compelled to do what they did by faith. And as you look at this closely, you will discover that speaking to the first century Jewish Christian who this letter was written to, these would have been the words that they needed to encourage them, to exhort them to continue moving forward in their Christian faith. We have to understand that the books of the Bible were letters written to people like you and I. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians, individuals that practiced Judaism their entire life until Christ came. Then they saw that he was the promised Messiah in whom they waited for, and then they placed their faith and trust in him as their Messiah and began this new life under the new covenant that God has established with uh, man through Jesus Christ. And they became Christians with a long history of Judaism behind them. And Acts chapter 2 tells us that when they first became Christians... They were warmly welcomed by the people there in Jerusalem. They had favor amongst all the people from the apostles to those who followed the apostles' teachings, the early Christians, Jewish Christians. But as time went on, the book of Acts clearly tells us that the sentiment against these individuals, these Christians, began to change immensely. And they began to be persecuted by the religious leaders there in Jerusalem who became threatened by this move of Christianity, which they knew as the way. Of course, quoting Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The religious leaders knew that their authority was being undermined by this new move who saw Christ as their ultimate authority in all things. So they began to greatly persecute the church there in Jerusalem. And the church then spread throughout all the region around Israel, a region called Asia Minor, which were Gentile nations, nations that had never grown up under the umbrella of the history of Judaism. And when they got there, their difficulty became even greater because those nations, though they were accepting of gods, these Jewish Christians believed that there was only one true God. They were monotheistic in a polytheistic world. 
and they became greatly persecuted. Uh, they were, uh, their wealth had been taken from them. They had been exiled from their communities. Many of them were living as, um, uh, you know, uh, nomads uh, amongst the regions around the cities because they were not allowed in the cities. And they began to question the, you know, why did I ever become a Christian? At least I, know who, I knew who I was as a Jewish individual. I had a homeland in which I could call my own there in Israel. But now as a Christian, I've not only been exiled from everything that I've known, but I appear to have lost my identity in who I once was. And they began to vacillate. They began to consider returning once again to Judaism. And so the writer of Hebrews writes this letter showing them that it is an error to do so, that Jesus is the promised one. Jesus greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than all who lived previously. And then coming to Hebrews chapter 11, we find the chapter now where we have discovered that each and every one of the patriarchs, the individuals, the, the forefathers of the Hebrew nation all waited for the promise of the coming Messiah, yet in their lifetime they did not see it occur. But they lived by faith to their death waiting in anticipation for what God was going to do, fully convinced that what God has promised, he's able to perform. And so this letter then reaches these individuals who are now having difficulty. And these individuals that have been listed for us, these inductees to the hall of faith, each and every one has meant to encourage the reader of this letter to push forward and to continue on with Christ. And then we get to the plaque. Something that we would miss or run past to get or to continue the story of Abraham, which it picks up in verse 17. But as a result, if we miss these four verses, we will miss the entire uh, mindset of the individuals and why they did what they did. Let's look at it together in verse 13. These all died in faith, having, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they have been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have an opportunity to return. But, as it is, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. And he has prepared for them a city, a place, a dwelling. All of these refer in verse 13 to each and every one that we have read in the previous verses. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. Each of these lived in accordance to what they believed. 
that God was going to do something extraordinary in and through them. And yet they did not live to see the full resulting thereof. And from their position, they were still able to conclude one fact. A fact that you and I need to wrestle with and either reject or embrace this morning. They saw themselves in the light of the promises of God as mere sojourners, exiles, individuals that were on a path to someplace better. And they lived accordingly. They did not see this world as their permanent dwelling place, as their permanent home. They did not live as if this was all that there was to life. They knew something better lie on the horizon for them, and they lived accordingly. They lived as if they truly believed that. This is the heart, this is the mind of the individuals. They were desiring a better country. They knew that God was able to perform that in which he promised. As believers in Jesus Christ, we look forward to heaven, a place indescribable, a place that individuals like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 said when he saw it, he, he couldn't even articulate what it was like. It was so incredibly glorious. He saw himself, Paul did, as an individual who was not of this world, but is simply an ambassador, one chosen by God to be a representation to all who are around of the reality of God. As a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, God desires the same from us. He wants us to see this world as merely a passing through, a layover, if you will, to that which is still yet better and is still yet to come. That is to say that we are not to neglect our responsibilities here on this earth. If I become an individual with a family, I have my responsibility as a husband to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I have the responsibility to love my children as Christ would. I have a responsibility to train them up in the way of the Lord. I have the responsibility to provide for my family. That's all part of this sojourning. But ultimately, my goal is not here. My main objective is not to find every pleasures that this world has to offer and exhaust them. I see myself, though a citizen of the United States of America, more greatly I see myself as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And ultimately the authority over my life is Jesus Christ. And though I am still responsible to obey the laws of this world in which I live, from driving appropriately, even though I don't understand if we're only supposed to drive 55, why do they make the car go faster? Conundrum, right? Shouldn't you be able to use what you purchase? Amen. <laughs> Thank you. I was really hoping for that. Because I knew I wasn't the only one who had a problem speeding. I have a responsibility to pay my taxes, to uh, 
to recognize the authority of the government that is over me. These are all biblical responsibilities that I have as a sojourner walking through this world. I take the rights that I am blessed with here in the United States of America uh, dearly, and I will fight for those religious freedoms for uh, individuals who come after me. But this isn't the end-all game. This isn't it. Right? The best is still yet to come. For Christians, this is the worst it's ever going to get. For those who aren't Christians, this is the best it's ever going to get. But do we see ourselves as they saw themselves in the light of the faith of the promises in which they've been given that they were mere sojourners and exiles? And my answer to that today is, I don't know if Christians see themselves that way any longer. Sometimes I see Christians living as this is all that there is to life. And they're living for every pleasure that life has to offer. And there is no indication in their life that they're governed by a heavenly governor, king, authority. They live as if this is all that there is to life. But faith tells me that there's much, much more. And Abraham, and Sarah, and Noah, and Enoch, and Abel, and Jacob, and Isaac, all took this faith. They took it to heart. And they allowed God to do in and through them all that God desired to do for his purposes. As one wrote, he says, they realized that this world was not their final home. They were content to be strangers and pilgrims, refusing the urge to nestle and to make themselves comfortable here in this life. Their desire was to pass through the world without taking any of its character upon themselves. And that was the effect. They desired a better country. They wanted all that God had to offer them. And in allowing that, they were willing to forego and to forsake the different enticements of this world. And we have to ask ourselves the question are we willing to do the same? Because I believe that the answer to that question will really truly indicate where your heart is with God this morning. Now, maybe you're growing in your faith. Maybe you've recently become a Christian and you're saying, well, wow, that's a huge objective. That is a monumental decision. You're right. And over time, as you realize who God is, God will help you and form that faith within you and show you that living for His glory is the sole purpose of our existence. But, what the United States of America is experiencing today is that there are many who come to church every Sunday. Who would call themselves and classify themselves as a Christian? Saying that they believe in the resurrected Jesus Christ and that they follow Him. But what we're discovering is though they have made that proclamation, their life's proclamation is nowhere in consistent harmony with that belief. And the question therefore then becomes, then do you really believe what you say you believe? These individuals allowed their faith 
to, ma- to bring them to the point where they recognize that they were mere sojourners and they were mere exiles here on this earth and they were waiting for a greater country to come. Heaven, the kingdom of God here on this earth. That's why they were doing what they were doing. If we choose to live for ourselves... If we choose to see this as all that there is, and I would greatly debate that. If we see that there is more to this world than what meets the eye, didn't mean to quote Transformers there, but if we see that and we do not acknowledge and react accordingly to it, then I have to ask, do we really believe it? And this is a question that becomes very uncomfortable for the individual to consider. Because it gets right to the heart of the problem, which we'll see in just a moment. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, was constantly challenging the individuals in where their hearts were. He says, well, your lips, they draw close to me, but your heart is far from me. And Jesus pulled the individual's heart to the arena, to the center of it all, and said, where is your heart concerning me? Now, I can't answer this question for you. This is a question that you have to answer between you and God. It is a question that everything is predicated upon. You will not be able to walk by faith if you are resigned to the fact that this world is all that there is. You will live for yourself. You will live for its temporal perks. You will live to try to be as happy and fulfilled and, um, uh, you know, successful and so forth that this world has to offer. And yet in the grand scheme of things, you're going to be missing it all. Jesus said it this way. If you look to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you look to lose your life, you're going to save it for my sake. And so Jesus now is bringing us to this point. The writer of Hebrews is bringing us to this point saying, look, where is your heart? These individuals that we have all seen and read up to this point, the plaque is telling us they lived by the promises given even though they died before the promises were fulfilled. Did Noah see the judgment coming? Sure he did but he didn't see the new society in which God was demonstrating after that. He didn't see the Christ come. He didn't see the new heavens and the new earth being instilled in his lifetime. Abraham saw Isaac being born, but never saw the true fulfillment of the prophecy that, number one, through Christ, all the nations of the world shall be blessed, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars or the grains of the sand. But he lived in accordance to it. Jacob and Isaac, the same. Sarah, the same. Enoch pleased God with the minimal insight that he had to God as he walked with God each and every day. And Abel came to God with the sacrifice that God required because he believed that what God was promising, he is able to perform. So now it comes to you and I. And reading these verses, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, that is, through the promise in which God had made to them, and greeted them. 
And that word greet there in the Jewish, I'm sorry, in the Greek language means to embrace them from afar. Meaning, uh, in a more layman's term, they saw the promise of God as if it was fulfilled in their lifetime, even though the promise was yet to be fulfilled later on, even after they had died. They greeted the promise and they embraced it. They lived accordingly and they allowed what yet was still going to happen be a reality in their life at that current moment. For example, if we believe that we are children of the kingdom of God, should we not then therefore act as if we are children of the kingdom of God? If we believe that heaven awaits for us through the grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, shouldn't we live for His glory who has made that life possible? Shouldn't we who say that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength do as Christ commanded? He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Should we not live as individuals who anticipate the return of Jesus Christ at any moment? Living in a holiness as John had written to us in 1 John. Should we not live in accordance to what we say we believe? That is exactly what these words mean. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, this permeated their thinking. It changed their citizenship. Again, though I have the responsibility as acting as a responsible citizen here in the United States of America... I'm responsible to obey the laws. I'm responsible to pay my taxes. I'm responsible to live um, uh, in harmony or as best as I can with my neighbor and so forth. My ultimate authority is my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But every choice that I make, every decision, everything that I uh, do, I weigh under the umbrella of the realization that I am a citizen in the kingdom of God. I'm not looking to do these things to earn my salvation. I look to do these things to honor the salvation that God has given me by grace. I have become a child of God. As many of you know, I was adopted by my parents here in this area. I was adopted from a place called The Cradle in Evanston, Illinois. Some of you may have heard of The Cradle. It's quite an a, a adoption agency. It's been around a long time. In fact, the same year that I was adopted, another individual adopted two children from The Cradle, and his name was Bob Hope. I could have been Eric Hope. I missed it by that much. But being adopted by my parents, I realized that I had been given the privilege of, of a life that I may not have access to before that. For I realized later that my biological parents, as my dad did a little bit of research and in the 1970s, early 80s, he was fascinated with genealogies. He did his, and then he began to look at mine to see if he could find who my biological parents were. And he discovered that my father was a professor at Northwestern University, and my mother was a student there at that time. So I hope she got an A for the class. But as a result, here I am, adopted. Now, adoption has been a blessing in many ways that I can say, especially when, you know, my dad is 
there and I pull up with my friends in high school, which I did. He's cutting the lawn and he has a white hat on, brown shirt, plaid shorts, different colored argyle socks and white shoes. And I looked at him, I said, thank God I'm adopted. You know, that's not destined for me. But then I was adopted a second time in 1986 by God. And it changed my status once again. I would became an heir to all that God had in, through Jesus Christ. And as a result, my citizenship changed once again from a citizen of this area here in the United States of America to the heavenly kingdom. And then responsibilities came with that citizenship. And as these Jewish individuals lost all of their historical identity, no longer in their homeland, they were about and they had lost all their material wealth. They were left with nothing as nomads amongst the desert and wilderness areas there in Asia Minor. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you have it all. Even though you don't see it, even though it doesn't seem apparent to you, you have it all because you have everything that God wants you to have. And you will have it, and it will be a reality in your life. So live accordingly. So as a result, these individuals who thought they were simply cast away now see that each and every individual listed here in the Hall of Faith chose to be strangers, that is, foreigners, and exiles here on this earth which now the readers of this letter would have been living practically themselves. Verse 14. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They were seeking something better. They were living forward. They were not simply uh, reside to think that all that life had to offer was found here in this world at this time, that there was better to yet come. In verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. If their mind was fixated on the land in which they had come out of, then they would have returned to that land. And this is where the real issue comes into play. Because their hearts here at this point in time are being indicated that they were pointing forward and they were living forward into the faith in which they had. But we know of others in the Bible that when they were led out of the land of Egypt by Moses, they began trekking through the wilderness to the land in which God had promised them and seeing God doing such great, incredible things first discovering their deliverance by the ten plagues that were poured out upon Egypt, and then being led through the wilderness by a uh, cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night, coming to the Red Sea and seeing it open before them, allowing them to pass and destroying the Egyptian army behind them. God was with them every single step of the way. But when they got to the land in which God had promised, they began to waver in their faith. For when difficulties arose within their journey, they immediately started revising history and going back to where they had just been led from. 
in their minds and in their hearts. Do you remember Egypt and how great the leeks and the onions were? Really? Completely forgetting the slavery, the cruelty in which they were handled with. But difficulties came, and as difficulties came, they began to want and long for what they once had, forgetting the difficulties, the real issues that they had left behind. The issue was the fact that their hearts were not placed on what God was going to provide for them. Their hearts were placed upon where they had just departed from. And that indicates to us this this issue of familiarity. Individuals will often stay in a very horrible situation rather than leaving that situation for an unknown situation due to familiarity. I've seen abused women who rather stay where they are under the hand of the abuser rather than to move out into the unknown due to the issue of familiarity. For us, we need to get past familiarity. We need to realize that even though the future is unknown, it is still better than that in which God has taken us out of. And therefore, we can set our hearts moving forward. But the children of Israel did not do that. And as a result, it was an indication of where their heart was. Look at with me verse 15 again, if you will. There's a very interesting phrase in the Greek. If they had been thinking, there's the word I want to bring to your attention. I agree with the Greek translators who believe that this word thinking is correct, but it is incomplete, which often English words are when it comes in reflecting Greek uh, words. Greek words are very robust in their vocabulary and their definition. This word thinking not only means to think, but it means to ponder. It means to place your mind upon, but it can also be translated in this way. Where your heart is. It can be translated where your heart is. If their hearts would have been there, then they would have looked to gone back there. But their heart was not there. It was in what God had promised to perform on their behalf. That's where their heart is. Turn with me to Luke 12, if you will, in your Bibles. I want you to see this this morning. I want you to see how this incredible synergy between faith in our hearts, our thinking, and our rationale all play into a common denominator. Look at how Jesus uses this, not only here but in other places in the Gospels. Talking about the heart of an individual... Starting in verse 22, it's a chapter I know that most of you are familiar with. Let's read it together. And he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn. Yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? 
And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small as a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Well, consider the lilies, Jesus says. And how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of what? Little faith, notice that. And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor to be worried. Why? Verse 30, look at this. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and yet your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Faith. Jesus is saying that as an individual, as a Christian... Trust God to provide those things that you are in need of. Don't worry about them. God will provide those things that you are in need of. He is a loving heavenly father that provides for his kids without failure. And he challenges them on their faith. Then he compares, he says, those who do worry about such things are the nations around us who do not have God. And therefore, they have to worry about these things but they, because they don't have a heavenly provider like you have. So seek first the kingdom of God as Matthew renders this particular uh, teaching and its righteousness and everything else shall be added unto you. Now, the teaching doesn't end there, but faith has been brought up just as faith has been the subject matter of Hebrews chapter 11. Jesus then goes into the heart of the individual, showing us that this heart and faith are working together, showing us that where our heart is, that's where we have placed our faith. If our faith is in God, then we will trust God to provide those things in which we need. If our faith is in ourself or if our faith is in this world, then we'll be looking to those things to provide the needs that we have. Look at what he says in verse 32. The teaching continues. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Verse 34. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is fascinating to me because in the Greek language, there is no punctuation. This is all one teaching. And the word faith and the word heart are linked grammatically together in this teaching. So you placing your faith in God is equal to you placing your heart in God. You placing your heart in God is you placing your faith in God. That's what Jesus is saying here. And therefore, they should be synonymous for one another. Your heart, your faith should be in God. It's inconsistent to have your heart in one place and your faith in another. 
If your faith and heart is not in God, then your faith and your heart will be with yourself or in the world around you. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, trust God in the kingdom of God that is still yet to come. Realize that you are a citizen of that kingdom and don't let your heart be set on the land in which you've come out of. Let your heart and your faith be set in me in the land in which I'm taking you. That's what he's saying here. It's extraordinary if you think about it. Think about when he says things like this. In Luke 6, 43 through 45, he says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit, or figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from bramble bushes. The good person out of the good treasures of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasures produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He goes on to say in Matthew 15, 6 through 8, He need not honor his father, so for the sake of your tradition you have made void the word of God. He says, you hypocrites, well, I, well did Isaiah the prophet, prophet say of you when he said, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God is saying that it is inconsistent to say your heart and your faith are in him and to live outside of that reality. This is what I'm saying. I think there are many today, and here's where we're going to get to the rubber hitting the road. There are many today who claim Christianity, who have not truly been born again. And as a result, the indication of that reality is the fact that they have no desire for the things of God. They don't desire His Word. They don't desire to pray. They don't desire to be in church with their fellow believers in Jesus Christ. They have no desire for the poor. They have no desire for the things of God. I have to ask, how then can you proclaim that you are a Christian and have no desire for those things? Because everything that you're saying is that your heart is not with Him. And therefore, if your heart is not with Him, how then can you say that you believe because your faith goes where your heart goes? And your heart goes where your faith goes. That's what's being said here. It is an extraordinary thing to consider. The early church made it abundantly clear, James particularly, the first book of the Old, uh, New Testament, James. James made it abundantly clear that the individual who has true saving faith in Jesus Christ, and we are saved by faith, we are not saved by works, we are saved by faith. But James qualifies that faith. That faith will demonstrate itself in outward works in the individual's life. It's not enough just to say you believe for the demons believe and know and acknowledge. But true saving faith changes a person from the inside out and will cause one to begin to reconform uh, into the image of Jesus Christ. Our actions, our thoughts, everything that we do will be consistent with the heart and the mind of God. And where we fail, that's where grace comes in. And we will fail. We'll make mistakes. We're not going to be perfect. But the process should always be pointing upward, continuously growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'm challenging each and every one of us today to consider this. Where is your heart? Do you love the Lord your God with all your what? Very first one, 
heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbors as yourself. This is the royal law of love that Jesus Christ sat down for us. He placed it as the foundation. And if we love God, we too, like these individuals inducted into the hall of faith, will look forward to that which God has promised us. We will live for His glory. We will look and consider everything in the light of Scripture. It is an incredibly awesome thing to see from this vantage point. Now, where does that leave us today? Well, let's continue in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, as we close. But as it is, they desired a better country. That word desire is their heart's affection, their longing, their love, their devotion was placed in this better country, that is, a heavenly one. And as a result of this desire for this better country, And living in accordance to that, that's what he's saying here. Realizing that they were strangers and exiles amongst this earth. Therefore, notice what he says at the end. God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. To the Jewish individual reading this, this is what this would have meant. The Jewish individual growing up with the blessings of the law, the uh, deliverance of Moses, and all that that entails, the prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, and everything else. Governed by the old covenant that God says, if you have adoration for me and you are obedient to me, I will bless you. If you are disobedient and these things will occur, these curses will come upon you. That was part of the old covenant. As individuals who found themselves now as nomads in the wilderness areas with nothing to their name, they thought to themselves under the reality of that old covenant that God is mad at me. God isn't pleased with me any longer. Look, I have nothing. I'm in a tent in the middle of the wilderness. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to them, Because you have chose to desire a better country, therefore God is not ashamed of you. If you put your heart and affection on God, you place your faith and trust in God, He will not be ashamed of you. No, regardless of your circumstances, which we often do like that Jewish individual who read this, when we are feeling blessed and everything works together and everything comes together perfectly, we think, oh God, you love me and I feel so blessed by you and oh, your love is just abundant. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But then when things go south or sideways on us, we immediately think, oh no, God's love has changed towards me. His affection, his devotion, his grace is no longer there for me. Is that true? No. Absolutely, positively not. Your circumstances will never change the love of God for you. Never. Whatever situation you find yourself in, even if it is due to the fact that you lived in some disobedient manner, you brought about the consequences of sin, and you feel like you're just just buried under the weight of those consequences of your sin, 
it doesn't mean that God has cast you off. For where sin is, grace abounds even farther. Come back to God. You don't know what I've done. Come back to God. You don't know how I feel. Come back to God. He does. And this is why Paul wrote what he wrote in Romans chapter 8, and we'll conclude with this this morning. I want you to hear this. We all need to hear this. We all fail at times. We all blow it. Spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. We have all been there. We all know and understand that. But listen to what he says here. Starting in verse 31. Of chapter 8 of Romans, we'll close with these words. Really listen to them today. What then shall we say to these things? Now, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is it who condemns? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 35. This is a question that you need to ask yourself this morning. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trial, tribulation, or distress, persecution, or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. See, we can be in many different circumstances, many different difficulties, even being martyred for Christ's sake. For your sake, we are being killed all day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then Paul says, no, regardless of the way you perceive it, regardless of the way the world perceives it at that moment, no, even though that you are at the hand of your martyr, this is what he's saying. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Take that to the bank. This is what he's saying to you. Put your heart in, on him. Set your heart on him. Put your faith in him. And regardless of what other circumstances you find yourself in, even if you were brought as a martyr to die on behalf of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and all the world looking on thinks you are one who is finished, one who is nothing, one who is being brought down and, and even cast off possibly by your God, Jesus says nothing will separate you from me and the love that I have for you. There are two different perspectives There is the perspective that we have within this world. And then there's this perspective that God has upon this world. It is that perspective that we will continue in Hebrews chapter 11 trying to develop. 
as we continue to read the individuals who by faith saw God use ordinary people in extraordinary ways. But we need to see things like he sees them. Notice what they said. They had the promises from afar off, but it greeted them as if they were near. They were a reality, even though they still hadn't yet come to pass. Don't go backwards. There's nothing in this world, guys. But there's everything that lays forward for us in Jesus Christ.